Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast from the Recount and iHeartRadio with big ups to the one and only RZA for our dope theme music. If you caught our episode with CNN's Don Lemon a couple weeks ago, you will likely recall a digression where Don and I talked a bit about a topic of enormous narcissistic interest to guys like us in our mid-50s, life extension. Specifically, the promise of a pill that would let us live, if not forever, then well into our hundreds. The digression was brief and jovial, and we certainly didn't dive into the science behind it or the broader developments that moved this kind of thing out of the realm of pure fantasy. But then, lo and behold, an email appeared in my inbox about an ambitious new book and TV series delving deeply into, quote, one of our greatest achievements, the doubling of global life expectancy over the past century or so. Both the book and the series have the same title, Extra Life, A Short History of Living Longer, and that alone would have been enough to pique my curiosity. But the fact that the book's author and the series' co-host is an old friend who happens to be one of the most interesting writers and thinkers out there on science, technology, and how they intersect with the human experience took my interest to a whole new level. And the Hell and High Water team reaching out to set up today's episode, a conversation with Stephen Johnson. The state of our living is getting longer despite the COVID pandemic around us right now. Long term, we are living longer and longer lives globally, in part because of medicine and science, but in part because of public health institutions and activists who fought to achieve this extraordinary breakthrough in human longevity. In terms of combining productivity and quality, Stephen Johnson is a wonder to behold. Before Extra Life, from 1997 to 2020, Stephen published a dozen books, every one of them extremely good, some of them bestsellers. Interface Culture, Emergence, Mind Wide Open, Everything Bad is Good for You, The Ghost Map, The Invention of Air, Where Good Ideas Come From, Future Perfect, How We Got to Now, Wonderland, Farsighted, and Enemy of All Mankind. Not surprisingly, his new book, Extra Life, is also extremely good, but what makes it special is its timeliness and the way it connects to and illuminates and brings new perspective to the jarring and traumatic period we have all been enduring due to COVID-19. Here's how Stephen explained it in the email I mentioned earlier. Quote, when I first started exploring this idea, the dramatic increase in life expectancy over the past hundred years, I had it in my mind that there might be some nice symmetry in releasing a book and show about the triumphs of public health and medicine on the centennial of the end of the Spanish flu. I had no idea, of course, that we would end up finishing the book and actually shooting the series in the middle of the worst pandemic since the 1918-19 influenza. Thanks to the COVID crisis, I've come to think of the project as a kind of 200-year history of right now. That is the jumping off point for Stephen, and from there, Extra Life ranges far and wide. The book has chapters on everything from pasteurization and chlorination to auto safety and antibiotics, while the TV show, a four-part PBS series co-hosted by Johnson and the British historian David Olusoga, is organized around a quartet of big topics, vaccines, data, medical drugs, and human behavior. Speaking of that series, it is airing now, every Tuesday night at 8 p.m. on PBS, the first episode on vaccines premiered on May 11, and you can find it on the web at pbs.org. If you watch the series, and you should, you will learn about the cholera epidemic in London in the mid-1800s, the sequencing of the human genome, the invention of soap, and the historical roots of the anti-vax movement, and much more. Stephen and I covered a lot of this territory in our conversation, and at times we went even further into artificial intelligence, the singularity, and even semiotics, which the powers that be here at the podcast determined was a bridge too far, and cut. So you'll all just have to live without hearing Stevens and my erudite colloquy on Foucault and Derrida, which in truth is probably for the best. 
What we didn't take out was our discussion of Stephen's attempt to, quote, create a new pantheon of heroes, the people who fought for the underappreciated advances that extended our lives and reduced childhood mortality by a factor of 10. It's those heroes who are at the heart of Extra Life, the book and the series, and it's those heroes we should all be grateful to and grateful for, not just for their work in the past, but the things they are doing today and every day to help us all cope with hell and high water. The discovery that penicillin could kill bacteria ranks up there with splitting the atom or the moon landing, a giant leap forward in human progress and life expectancy. But there were other wonder drugs to be discovered that could attack other great pathogens that had plagued humanity for millennia. We've all been living through a new threat to our lives, this time caused by a virus. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this episode of Hell and High Water. I'm here with my old friend, Stephen Johnson, uh, who we just determined in our little pre-chat that we haven't spoken to. I don't think we've seen each other for 10 years. There's a period of time we saw each other quite frequently, right? I guess we're an old friend in the sense that we we're both old each other for a decade. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, it's been it's been a while. But yes. Diana, my wife and I are both who went to Brown uh, roughly around the same time you, you did, I believe. Yeah. And we were like, wow, we haven't seen Stephen in a long time. Like, I, And I had a brief moment of why is that? And then I'm like, oh, well, because Stephen moved to California. And now that, you know, like your discussion of why we haven't seen each other in 10 years, like, I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. I feel a little better about the fact that I haven't seen you for yeah. 10 years, that you've been living on the opposite coast. It's not that we had a falling yeah. out. It's just, it's geography, John. That's all it was. I was like, was there some fight? Did I do something? Did I offend? <laughs> I mean, you did, but I don't want to bring that up now. No, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Anyway, uh, so we just played a little sound from the series. Stephen has a book out. It's called Extra Life, A Short History of Living Longer. It's not just a book. It's also a PBS series. They're out now. There could not be more topical. I mean, you could not be something that people, you think you're doing a big thing about public health and life expectancy and vaccines and drugs and all this stuff. Man, like it's bad that we have COVID, but boy, in terms of driving public interest in everything you're doing, could you have a more receptive market for this than you currently have? Well, it's really funny because this, this project is like four years, more than four years old. You know, I started working on the book and kind of got the book deal for it four years ago. And all along had this idea that it should be a TV show. We'd done the show on PBS called How We Got to Now a few years ago. And so I've kind of teamed up with the people who made that this company called Newtopia, who are terrific. But it took forever to get the TV show version of it off the ground. I, I mean, I went off and wrote the book, but it was really hard to get the financing together for the show. And all along through that whole arc, I had this idea that it would all come out around the centennial of the end of the Spanish flu, right? right. 1919, 1920 is kind right. of the end of the great influenza. And that's the last point at which life expectancy really drops in a sustained way. And then it's a hundred years of kind of extraordinary growth from that point on. And so I thought, well, this would be great. This will come out eh, 2020 or something like that. And it'll it'll have this interesting historical peg to the kind of the century since the end of the Spanish flu. No idea what what 2020 was actually going to signify and that we were going to have the next great global pandemic right at that point. And it was ultimately the kind of emergence of COVID, I think, that finally tipped it and, and enabled us to actually make the TV series because suddenly we were sitting on all this material about the history of public health and vaccines. And all along, I, I wanted to have the first episode be about the history of vaccines and, and partially about the eradication of smallpox, which is such an incredible story. But, you know, now it's the first episode right at this point in history where mass vaccination is the single most important thing that's happening in the world. So that, I mean, I wish we were timely for 
more positive reasons, but we're right. It is a really interesting time to be coming out with this. You said something like you felt like you're now doing like a 200 year history of right now, which you would like, that's a bit, that's a good like tagline for the whole thing. A 200 year history of right now. You know, and that's really there in the show. The book is a little bit more, I mean, the book has a lot of references to COVID and as you would imagine, but one of the things that we did with this show, which I, I don't know, maybe other folks have done this. I haven't seen it that much, which is to create what is effectively a history program. There's a lot of stories going back to the 1700s and a lot of early 20th century and mid 20th century stories. But at every moment, you're always, you know, five or 10 minutes away from something that is happening right now. So the vaccines episode kind of bounces back and forth between Lady Mary Montague in 1715 and me talking to Fauci in in the fall of 2020. Um, literally on the day, like I interviewed Fauci the day that final efficacy numbers came in for the Moderna virus. And wow. he just was like walking. Vaccine, vaccine. yeah. Oh yeah, sorry. <laughs> a slight difference there. For the don't want to give the anti, I don't give the anti-vaxxers any more <laughs> yeah, exactly. thing. The Moderna virus, that's exactly what it is, Stephen. <laughs> so he, you know, the, the fact that, you know, he was just ecstatic. He was like 95% efficacy. We would have never dreamed of something that good. Um, so anyway, the sh I think that the show is, is a kind of an interesting experiment where, you know, I think folks will learn a lot about how we got to this particular point and everything that led up to the development of vaccines. But it doesn't feel like you're just purely in the past, learning about the past for the sake of it. You're, you're really learning about the history of, of right now. The other thing that excited me about the series. I mean, I love it when people are able to get it together and do this right. And it's compelling, right? It's not, I mean, these are hard topics for TV. Some yeah. of them, much easier topics for a book, more more natural topics for a book. So to illustrate some of them, both the history of it and some of the hard science of it, you need to have the right kind of creative partners to do that. And you guys, I think I can't encourage people enough to go and actually watch the series in addition to buying the book because the series does a really brilliant job of bringing up, making visual and compelling Stuff that is sometimes, you know, a little dry when people try to put it on screen. I'm curious about like your experience in doing that. And and I know you said it took a long while to get the financing together, but talk a little bit about the interplay between what you wrote and what you got into the series and how you feel like that all worked out. Well, first off, thank you. W one big challenge for this, you know this, John, from conversations we've had and things that I've written about or talked about, but like w one major theme of my work across all the books and projects is this idea that that important breakthroughs happen through networks of collaboration and multidisciplinary networks, right? Where there's people coming together with complicated mix of kind of expertise. And, you know, the Eureka moment, lone genius model is really overstated. But the thing about the lone genius and the Eureka moment is it makes for really great stories, right? You're like, the apple fell on his head and he suddenly had a theory of gravity. Like people just like to hear it that way, right? And so the classic example that we talk about in the series is penicillin. Everybody's heard this story about Fleming and the Petri dish that he leaves. He goes on vacation and then this little mold forms it and he comes back and he's like, aha, I've discovered penicillin and the world has changed, right? <laughs> and it's a great story because like everybody who keeps a messy desk is like, well, that guy got a Nobel Prize, so <laughs> this will this will work out. But in fact, the story of penicillin is way more complicated than that. There are many kind of major players involved in it. The real challenge with penicillin was not discovering it, it was scaling it and trying to figure out like, could you make enough of the stuff to keep people alive? And it was a story that involved institutions like the United States military and the Dunn School at Oxford and the Department of Agriculture, as it turns out, for all these different kind of bizarre reasons. And so if you really want to know like how momentous things happen in the world, like how we extended our lifespan, how we invented antibiotics, 
you have to tell a story that involves broad networks of people. Right. And there's an intrinsic like tension, particularly on TV, yeah. particularly on like broadcast primetime TV about like, here, let me tell you a story where there are a thousand heroes, right? It's a complicated thing to pull off. And so that was the kind of intellectual tension. And to me, it's so important that we do figure out a way to make these stories and make them popular and accessible because, I mean, I think I've mentioned it briefly in that clip you played, like every kid knows about the moon landing. Yeah. But how many kids know about the eradication of smallpox? Like something that happened right around the same period. And that I think is just as momentous and probably more meaningful for people's actual lives than putting the man on the moon. And so we need to tell these stories in part to remind ourselves of that progress is possible and that we're the beneficiary of all these actions that people took in the past. So that was one tension. How do you tell those stories, make them compelling? The other problem was COVID. Like we had all of a sudden we were like, okay, right. we're going to make four hours of television. We kind of got officially greenlit in July. <laughs> and we, we knew most of the material and we'd been able to kind of preload a lot of that stuff, but we had to shoot it in October, November, December. And my co-host, David Oloshoga, who's amazing, was in, in the UK and they were just, you know, getting hit incredibly hard and really severe lockdowns. We had our own issues in the States. So logistically, it was a real challenge, but we finally got it done. Yes. And I, you know, I've been making a television show for, for Showtime through the pandemic, you know, trying to figure out how to make television in this environment was really, really tricky. And again, kind of, you can see it speaking as a professional about this. It was just interesting to watch you, how you guys managed to make the thing. As I said before, it's a really, it's a compelling documentary. It's really good. It's really nice to watch. It's beautiful. Um, but you can see a little bit of the wires at various times. There's a bunch of tricks you had to do yeah, yeah. to deal with the reality of the constraints that we were all living under in these circumstances. And it's all done very nicely. But I think you'll look back on it some years from now and you'll say, yeah, I can see like there are a whole bunch of things we would have done in a totally different way, which you obviously already know, but you'll they'll be like right. much more apparent a few years from now where you look back and say, right. yeah, they wouldn't have done that. They could all have been in the same place doing this the normal way. <laughs> well, the, the big question about that actually is a major part of the whole series is these kind of conversations that were actually kind of modeled on podcasts, really. It was a very right. post-podcast era show in the sense that there are these conversations between David Oloshoga and you yeah. and, and me that run through, you know, they're kind of pieces to camera where people tell their stories, but then David and I are in conversations throughout. And we always wanted to have that kind of conversational flow, which I think is good. But obviously the choice was that we would be together somewhere and we yes. would shoot all those. And we couldn't do that. We just couldn't figure out how to get me to the UK to shoot it. And yeah. then we ended up kind of embracing the Zoom approach and shot it, you know, on really nice cameras, but with that kind of Errol Morris thing where you're looking straight into the lens. And then they just stylistically integrated that kind of split screen aesthetic all the way through the show. And I think it's, I mean, it was a pain to shoot because we were not in the same room together and we we're trying to have these natural seeming conversations. But I think I would shoot it that way again because yeah. it feels like when you're watching it, like you actually are in the middle of the conversation rather than kind of like peering in on two people who are sitting at a table having a conversation together in this weird way. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. So it was one of those, you know, COVID constraints that actually opened up this new way of doing something that actually might be better in the end. You know, you mentioned the Spanish flu. I don't think I really realized this, that, you know, the Spanish flu, the last point when there was a major kind of reversal of global life expectancy. And and ever, ever since then, we've been on the march in the right direction. And that, as you note at the top of the show, it's true, even with all the horror of COVID, we're still marching towards longer lives. And as the data shows, you've got, you know, the book has 
has chapters that talk about vaccines and data and epidemiology and pasteurization and chlorination, regulations and safety technology and famine. So you've got all these chapters that take on those topics. The show is four episodes and it has a, a simpler structure kind of by necessity of doing television. And so you start in the place where anybody sensibly would, which is the vaccine story, and then move on to data and then drugs and then behavior. Just because it's so topical, I want to just dwell a moment on the vaccine thing. And, and let's play, you mentioned the Fauci interview. I want to play a little bit of that sound of you talking to Tony Fauci and then, and then we'll talk about it on the other side. So much of the progress that we've seen development of a coronavirus vaccine has come from that rapid sequencing of the genome. Is that true? If I would have told my mentors back then that guess what? You don't even need to get the pathogen in your hands to make a vaccine. So, you know, the old vaccinologists of back in the day, as it were, would have laughed at you. What do you mean? How can you make a vaccine if you don't have the pathogen? Well, all you need is a computer screen. And, you know, the first sequencing of pathogens back not too long ago would take over a year to do. You can do it now, essentially, in a day. You can just bingo, you've got it. So, you know, he goes on to talk about how the Chinese posted the sequence of COVID early. And then, you know, part of the explanation for why do we get to these vaccines so fast? Part of it is because there were this building on these platforms that had been going on for a decade. Part of it was because of this. And it's a thing that runs throughout your, not entirely all throughout your book, but, and I want to talk about it in depth later in the podcast, but just the centrality of genomics and how revolutionary it is. And this is my, my question and my kind of my point is that like, we have all lived through hell in the last year and no one can gainsay the pain, the death, all of the shit that's happened. This podcast kind of started in this moment where it was like, it really felt like end times, right? Like, how are we going to get through this apocalyptic moment on a bunch of different fronts, but primarily driven by the pandemic. And now I think it's obvious and I wanted to see if you agree. And it, it drives right out of the Fauci point. I think it's obvious that when the history of this is written, that the story of COVID is going to be a a good news story. It's going to be a story of how science was able to eradicate this potentially much more devastating pandemic because of the advances in genomics, because of the advances in vaccine science, that we were in this place and people look back on this and say, given what this could have been, this was a miracle how fast we got to this level of vaccination and how much, how many lives we saved and that the history, as this is written about historically, this will be like one of the breakthrough moments in a long arc of medical and public health progress, not the, the what it has felt like for the last year for most of us, which has been the worst, darkest period of any of our lives. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it, John. I think that's right. You know, one of the things that Fauci said to me that day was about the results that had come back from the Moderna trials was, he was like, I've gotten a lot of bad breaks in my career, but man, we got a great break with this one. <laughs> you know, it is like Fauci <laughs> voice, which I can't yeah. quite do an impression yeah. of. But, and on some level that is true of the vaccines, particularly the mRNA vaccines, but it, it's true almost kind of chronologically, like in a sense that the lucky break we got with COVID was that this didn't happen just 10 years earlier, you know, or much less, 20 years earlier, right? I mean, like the best kind of analogy of this is that it took us four years just to identify the virus that causes AIDS, the HIV virus, right? Yeah. Four years yeah. just to figure out what it was. Yeah. And 
you know, we had this thing sequenced three weeks after it was first isolated, right? <laughs> like a novel organism comes into the world and three weeks later, its genetic sequence is circling entirely around the world thanks to the internet. So like before before it had ever really even hit America yeah, in a it, hard way, before March, it was already sequenced. We already knew exactly what the fucking thing was. It was sequenced in, in January. Yeah. I mean, it's unclear. We don't really know. I think there was a footprint of it in the United States at that point, but it certainly was not widely known and yeah. not been observed. And there were no identified cases, I don't think, at that point. So as many people have said, like they basically designed, they were like, okay, this spike protein, this is the configuration, this is what we're going to use. And they basically designed the mRNA vaccines in a weekend after they got that genetic <laughs> sequence. So like we had on some level, we had, we had the vaccine, you know, before we had an outbreak in the United States. That's, that's the craziness of this whole thing. And, and it, which raises interesting questions about you know, should we have accelerated the trials potentially or not? Because part of the hard work had been done, you know, by February of 2020. So that is incredible. And that is going to be a template for future pandemics and for other things that will come out of the mRNA platform. And so we were very lucky that this didn't happen 10 years ago. Same thing with the internet as well. I mean, if this had happened 15 years ago, just society's basic functioning would have been a lot harder without Zoom and a million other things that we are now dependent on that would helped us get through this year. So that part of it was huge. I think the prominence of the vaccine story is interesting in a, in a way because the other reason why we wanted to start the series with vaccines and the book, kind of the opening chapter really is vaccines, is that's where all this progress in health really begins as well. If you rewind the clock all the way back to right. You know, 1800. And I think that one of the things that surprised me the most about this research that maybe folks aren't aware of is that basically until around 1750, there was really no sustained progress in any direction in terms of life expectancy for human beings anywhere in the world. So there were, you know, there were good years and there were bad years. There were plague years and there were good harvest years and populations would live a little bit longer or die a little bit earlier, but there was no steady progress in any direction over long periods of time. And what this meant also was that there was no inequality in health. Basically, human beings lived to an average of 35 years, mostly because childhood mortality was so high, like two out of five children would die before reaching adulthood. And that was just the reality of life. If you were a member of the European royalty, or you were a hunter-gatherer, or you were somewhere in the middle, it didn't matter. You could have all the wealth in the world, all the access to all the food in the world. You still, your average life expectancy would be 35 and two out of five of your kids would die. And it's really the, the kind of the beginnings of vaccination and variolation, which comes right before it, it's kind of related, that start in some pockets of the world. You start to see this expanse where children stop dying and people start living a little, a little bit longer. And that's, that's the beginning of it. You know, the other thing you point out is that you know, anti-vax movements have been around for as long as there have been vaccines. And you, you know, in the in the first episode of the series, you're reading anti-vax literature from the 1800s in London, and you draw the explicit comparison with, you know, so social media misinformation and disinformation that's out there now. I just want you to talk about that a little bit because, you know, because of Tucker Carlson, because of what's happening right now, because of, you know, for all of the progress we've made, there's still a lot of concern about vaccination rates in the United States, you know, tapering off and, and are we going to get to herd immunity and when are we going to get to herd immunity and these pockets of vaccine, either resistance or hesitance that are out there obviously tied into not just that there are 
anti-vaxxers, but anti-vaxxers have big platforms now and that the social media environment, which you're, you know, a student of as well as some of the, all the stuff that's wrapped up in this book and this series, you know, has enabled a pervasiveness of the anti-vax message and conspiracy theories in a way that we've never seen before in the whole course of human history. So it's like I just said, when the history is written, the vaccine story will be a good news story. And I believe that. I also think that when the history is written, that it may turn out to be that the anti-vax story and the way in which social media enabled it is one of the darker things and more ominous things in a forward-going way. Like, what are we learning from all of this? And one of the things we're learning is that the social media environment that we've created is uniquely and perilously capable of propagating dangerous conspiracy theories in a way that we've never seen before in the whole history of humanity, literally on the planet. Well, there are a lot of different themes running through that question, John. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know. I feel like, dude, I mean, you know, I mean, I've enjoyed speaking to you in the past because we tend to go there, but I'm just saying. Yeah. So <laughs> a couple of things. Uh, the first is just the nature of vaccination as an intervention It is different from almost any other you know major medical intervention that we make and that has always been a central kind of trick or complication of it which is that you're <laughs> initially in the old days you're like giving someone who is not sick some version of either a related or somehow you know kind of neutered virus in order to keep them from getting sick in the future but there's something just fundamentally uh, you know, dis- Fuck, fucked uh, up is the word. Fucked up about it. Fucked you know, up there's something d- disturbing about like yeah. my child, particularly with children. It's like my child is totally healthy, and you're going to give him the thing, some version of the thing that might kill him. Just has always rubbed people the wrong way. Yeah, and you know, it made a lot m- more sense. You know, when it was first being introduced, because there was some mortality rate involved. I mean, variolation, which came before vaccination, where you really actually gave people just a small amount of smallpox itself had like a i think like a two percent mortality rate so that that was actually a big deal but the the risk of dying of smallpox was so much higher that it actually made sense you save lives in aggregate by by variolating them but then vaccination made made it much much safer and historically it's gotten safer and safer over time but that tension has always been there and i think it always will be there with vaccination more than any other kind of medical procedure that's out there but i think that it gets back to this kind of storytelling argument which is that there's this whole in our society, when we look out there and say, gosh, there's so much anti-science, there's so much, you know, there's so much resistance to public health messaging, there's so much resistance to the, the importance of taking this vaccine. To me, it's like that's in part because we don't talk about the the history. We don't people don't remember that, you know, I mean, childhood is is the ultimate emblem of this. It was just incredibly dangerous to be a child. Just 120 years ago, 150 years ago, 60% of all deaths in New York City in 1850 or so were children. So we managed to take this period of life. You read every 19th century novel, like the kids just are constantly dying. It's just a major dramatic trope because it was the reality. You know, somebody said, I think I quoted them in the book, there was an Oxford demographer, statistician or something like that in the early days of COVID was looking at the mortality kind of risk for different age groups. He just said in passing, he's like, no one has ever been safer than a contemporary, you know, third grader. (laughs) In the history of humanity, nobody's been safer than third grader. And that is just a tremendous change. And I'm not talking about something that happened, you know, 500 years ago. I'm talking about something that happened to your great, great grandparents, right? That their childhood was unbelievably risky and, and fraught with death. 
And we just, you know, all around the world, but particularly in the United States and, you know, wealthy countries, we have reduced that by a factor of 10 or more. But people don't know that. They don't remember that in part because it's an achievement that's measured in non-events, like things that didn't happen, the, the smallpox that you didn't die from when you were two, the cholera you didn't get from drinking water when you were three. So people just have a really short memory. And that that short memory then makes it possible for people to be like, I don't know about these vaccines. What's the deal with that? Rather than saying, wow, thank God vaccines kept me from getting smallpox. I, I would really like to take this one to keep me from getting COVID. So that's why I feel like the, the narrative you know, the kind of promotion of this idea of the triumphs we've made in the past has a real material impact. And also thinking about how this is taught, like, I don't understand why there isn't, you know, the, to me, like that story of, of our expanded life is the, the single most important kind of fact of the last hundred years. But I don't remember in my history classes really talking about that. Like it was much more about, okay, here's the global conflict of World War One, and here's what happened in World War Two, and here's these social movements, but not, you know, wow, we got a whole extra life. That seems to be something that I feel like kids should be informed about more. Man, there's so much to talk about. Um, I'm going to take, take a quick break here on the podcast and engage in some commercial activities, and then we'll come back and talk uh, a little bit about, you know, Stephen, you made reference to some of the earlier themes of your work. And one of the things that really struck me as, uh, I, I mean, I wasn't surprised to see you taking this on, but it's interesting the ways in which You've done a lot. You've ranged across about some interrelated fields, but it's interesting how the various ways in which kind of everything you've done in one way or the other kind of gets wound into this new book, Extra Life, a short history of living longer PBS series and book, Stephen Johnson's. We're going to talk about a little Stephen Johnson history uh, when we come back for the second part of How and How Are. Hey, sports fans, if you are someone who enjoys Hell and High Water and you are interested in understanding the storylines that are shaping modern life, and I mean, who isn't? Big storylines like the financialization of everything, the world in disarray, and cutting-edge advances in the world of science and technology, then you are going to love and find absolutely indispensable The Recount's newest podcast, The News Items Podcast with John Ellis. Every Monday through Thursday at 5.30 p.m., John and his brilliant co-host, Rebecca Darst, Break down news items from three categories, geopolitics, finance, and science and tech. John Ellis writes one of the very best newsletters in journalism. I'm talking about, like, I get a lot of newsletters, and most of them wash right over me. This one sticks. It's also called News Items, and he's teamed up with Rebecca, who is a veteran financial journalist and someone who just takes a little bit of John's edge off. If you want to feel a little bit smarter, or maybe even a whole lot smarter every day, and come away with a better understanding of the forces that are changing and shaping and transforming our world, then you owe it to yourself to listen to John and Rebecca and the News Items podcast. Plus, on most days, those two brilliant people have a bunch of other brilliant people who come on. Heavy hitters like Maggie Haberman from the New York Times, Jim Cramer from Business TV, Jill Abramson, Steen Jakobsen, all kinds of great folks. So subscribe to the News Items Podcast with John Ellis now. And we are back uh, with Stephen Johnson, author, polymath, genius, the mo you know, handsome as hell, all of that stuff. I want to, I want to, Stephen, I want to like, like take a little trip down memory lane here. You've written a lot of books. I'll mention some of them momentarily, but one of the one that is most directly related to a lot of the stuff that's in, in the current book, Extra Life, A Short History of Living Longer, is a book you wrote now, I guess back in 2005. It was published in 2006, a book called The Ghost Map. 
which was about the cholera epidemic in London in the mid 1800s. And a doctor, John Snow, a minister named Henry Whitehead, who mapped cholera. And by figuring out how they mapped it, figured out how to contain it and end it. It was a book that got a lot of praise and was very well reviewed and a lot of people talked about. And of all the books you've written, the one that has the clearest through line to what you're doing in this work is this one. So I want to play a little piece from a TED talk you gave back in 2006. When people were looking at 10% of their neighborhoods dying in the space of seven days, there was a, a widespread consensus that this couldn't go on, that people weren't meant to live in cities of two and a half million people. But because of what Snow did, because of this map, because of the whole series of kind of reforms that happened in the wake of this map, we now take for granted that cities of 10 million people, cities like this one, are in fact sustainable things. We don't worry that New York City is going to collapse in on itself quite the way that you know, Rome did and, and be 10% of its size in 100 years or 200 years. And so that, in a, in a way, is the ultimate legacy of this map. It's, it's, a, it's a map of deaths that ended up creating a whole new way of life, the life that, that we're enjoying here today. So there you are, giving one of many TED Talks. You're like, maybe you have given more TED Talks than anybody else in the history of TED Talks. You're like, is there some deal you have where they have to have you back every two years to give a TED Talk? Is that how it works? I, I don't know. I haven't, you know, I haven't done one in, in five years, John. I so I don't know what's up with them. There. You're overdue. But actually, that one was the TED event that was done at Joe's Pub oh. in downtown Manhattan. And right. when I was a kid, I wanted to be a stand-up comic when I was like 13. Yeah. And I got up in front of the people like sitting there with their drinks and I had like my mic in my hand and I was like, oh, wait, this is stand-up. I'm doing stand-up here. Except I was telling a story about cholera and intestinal disease and cities. Uh, so it, it wasn't very funny. Well, it's it's crazy because in another one of these TED Talks you did, you know, you told the story of publishing your second book, which was called Emergence, The Connected Lives of Ants, Brains, Cities, and Software. It came out in 2001. It came out uh, amazingly. It came out on 9-11 when your first child yeah, was yeah. two days old. Yeah. And we were living in downtown Manhattan. An incredible, uh, it's an incredible, and you're telling the story in this TED Talk. And, and again, I raised them both. So let's, let, let's stay focused here on the ghost map, first yeah. of all. So the ghost map is a book that as I said a second ago, I think feels to me like is a direct inspiration. Like you yeah. did the ghost map where like, these are topics I'm interested in and they led directly to extra life. Yeah, that's, that's right. I mean, ghost map, as you can hear in, in that quote that you played, it was a similar exercise in reminding people what life was like very recently. Right. So in 1850, if you lived in New York or you lived in London, drinking water could kill you in 48 hours. It was a regular occurrence. It was just not safe to drink the water. And also alluded to in that little clip, there was a related sense because cities like London and, and New York had grown so quickly and were so much bigger than any city had ever been before. Two and a half million people in London at that point, which is the largest city the world had ever seen. There was just this sense when you looked out and there would be these cholera outbreaks where 10% of the neighborhood would die in two weeks or 60% of the deaths in the city would be kids because of these waterborne diseases. There was a sense of like, people are not meant to live like this. Like you just can't make it work when you crowd this many people into these big metropolitan areas. So the whole project of cities was in, in serious question. And so solving the problem of how do you get clean drinking water, how do you fight off diseases like cholera, how do you reduce that childhood mortality rate, was not just a kind of triumph of health, but a triumph of the way that people live and settlement patterns that, you know, now our issue is can 25 million people live in a city and have it work. So it was a good story. It's a kind of thriller story structure. And I think that's one of the reasons the book did, did well in terms of readers. But intellectually, it was about reminding people, you know, that that arc of progress 
that really only extends back 150 years. It's not ancient history again. And so there was something about that that was always really powerful. And a big theme of that book, which became the second or third, I guess, episode of the PBS series, which you alluded to, is data. So what Snow and Whitehead did was to figure out that the bacterium that causes cholera was in the water and not in the air, which was the kind of misconception at the time. Right. And that uh, understanding that cholera was transmitted by drinking water meant that you could then solve the problem by separating the waste removal systems from the water supply systems, which seems obvious to us now, but at mm. the time was not entirely obvious. So basically, you could eliminate cholera even though they actually hadn't identified the pathogen. So Snow never, he, he looked for it, but the microscopes of the day weren't capable of seeing the bacterium that causes it. So he was able really just to look at patterns and data, like where are people dying? Where are they getting their water from? And using that data to kind of indirectly see the threat and understand the threat. And that was enough. It turned out to be sufficient. Like it was, it was useful once we were able to, you know, Robert Koch eventually like identified the, the cholera bacterium. Uh, a couple of decades later, and that was helpful for other reasons. But you could do it just with data alone, and that becomes a, a major theme in Extra Life, that data is often our first line of defense against these illnesses. I mean, the, the straight-lineness of it is appealing, and you I mean, you actually end up kind of telling some of the cholera story in, in Extra Life, so, so you kind of dip back into that well. With a different hero, like William yeah. Farrer, the statistician. Yeah. I was like, I can't tell the Jon Snow story again, again so I right. got to figure out. And, and Farrer is equally important in a way, because he's a guy who starts really assembling the statistics. And he's the first person who notices the mathematical kind of formation of the epidemic curve. And so when we say we're flattening the curve, we're kind of referencing right. William Farrer. I'm going to do this just for reference, okay? Here's a list of Stephen Johnson's books. Interface Culture, 1997. Emergence, 2001. Mind Wide Open, 2004. Everything Bad is Good for You. How Today's Popular Culture is Actually Making Us Smarter. That's was always my favorite of the books just because I so agree with it. Uh, the Ghost Map in 2006. The Invention of Error in 2008. Where Good Ideas Come From in 2010. Future Perfect in 2012. How We Got to Now in 2014. Wonderland in 2016. Farsighted in 2018, Enemy of All Mankind in 2020, and Extra Life in 2021. So first of all, let me just say, fuck you. <laughs> because no one writes books with this level of, of regularity and speed that are very good. And your books are all very good, and you just crank the fucking things out, and I hate you. As do all other writers in the world who struggle with writing things of high quality at this kind of pace. So just go fuck yourself, number one. <laughs> Secondly, implicit in that, you know, it's an amazing oeuvre. And people now who are not as old as we are, you're a little younger than me, not much, but don't even remember that like when I first met you, I think because you were the guy who started Feed Magazine. Yeah. It's like you were an early internet pioneer and you know you did Plastic.com and this stuff that was all really early web shit. And like back at Wired, you were like one of the guys, like one of our tribe was Stephen Johnson because you were doing shit in the online media when we were all inventing it, basically. Yep. So like, man, you've had a very prolific career. And here's the question I'm driving to. First of all, everybody should go out and buy all those books because they're fabulous. Wow, um, it's a shopping list. You got 13 books you got to buy. I know. Sorry, folks. I know. John told you to do it. And I do want you to answer the question of how I want to come back around to the question of how you could be this productive uh, with kids and all the other shit you have to deal with. But let me ask you this first. As you know, I've written about a lot about politics in my life, but I've also written about Silicon Valley and I've also written about the media business and I've written about advertising. I've written about various things, mostly politics though. But if somebody asked me, what's your topic? 
Mm. Like, what's your career been about? I have a really good answer to that. I totally know what it's about. It's about power. It's always been about power. That's mm. like the difference between writing about the president and writing about Bill Gates and the breakup of Microsoft. It's the same story to me. It's like it's about power, who has it, how they exercise it, how they fuck up in the process, who they abuse, when they abuse the power, when they use it for good, whatever. It's all about power and the shifting dynamics of that and how the intersections of culture, economics, technology, whatever, all are about power and the people who have it and the people who want it and the people who try to get it, whatever. What do you do? You have a thing like that? And those books are disparate in some ways, but I see some common threads, but I want to know what your answer is. Like, what do you think your career's about? Almost all of them are in one way or another about new ideas coming into the world. And you could call that innovation, but that sounds a little bit too kind of business speak, I suppose. But that's one theme. But it's about how, you know, in the case of the ghost map, the new idea is cholera is in the water. It's not in the air. We need to solve this problem to be able to make this new idea of the metropolitan city possible. Extra life is just a chronicle of new idea after new idea. How are we going to figure out how to solve this problem? Okay, we got smallpox is killing people. Like, what could we do about that? Oh, well, maybe if you take a little bit of cowpox and use that matter and inject it into somebody's, you can build immunity, blah, blah, blah. And even things like everything bad is good for you. It's like, okay, there's something happening in the culture here. There seems to be these new forms emerging. There are these new video games. The television is getting more complicated. Why is this happening? So it's new ideas, new technologies, new political movements in some cases, new ways of organizing society. How do they come about? Like, what are the forces and kind of recurring patterns that show up when some new idea gets created? And what is the actual shape of that idea taking form? In almost all of them, that's a kind of central theme. I'm going to loop back to the question I just asked or that I put a pin in, which is, do you have, I mean, I'm not asking you to be self-aggrandizing here, but I do think you found a groove here. Um, I mean, you really haven't gone more than two years without publishing a book since 2004. And sometimes you get a hater yourself and publish one every year, but mostly it's kind of like a roughly every two year schedule. You're on a great kind of groove to get these things out. You know, I find writing very hard and to be able to be in that like degree of like consistency, regularity, frequency, whatever, you know, just like cranking out really solid, good work that you're proud of every couple of years in the book space is not that common. How do you do that? Well, you're nice to say all those things. I think it's my secret is that I'm a, just a terrible parent. I've completely <laughs> ignored my children. I don't even know their names. Do you know how many children you have? I do. As far as I know, I have three, but okay. you never know. Wow. Um, no, that I hope that, that that's not true. So, I mean, one thing is, uh, yeah, I made, made this TV show, but that period where it really kicks in is a period when I kind of stopped doing other things. Like I was kind of a part-time entrepreneur, you know, I started Feed, I started a company called Outside In, I did, did a bunch of different things and I wrote more journalism, you know, I was kind of, I wrote a column for Discover for a couple of years, yeah. but you know, I did a bunch of things and what, where it really gets into the groove is when I'm just like, I'm just pretty much fundamentally writing books. Like I almost never write magazine articles. I write like one or two a year. I don't blog anymore. I don't like, I just don't have a lot of, I do, I do host a couple of podcasts, but mostly I'm just kind of voice talent for that. And so I don't have a lot of other projects. And the other thing that I think that I do pretty well is books have this interesting pattern to them where there's a lot of downtime. You come up with the first draft and you send it in and then it takes a month for like the next draft to come back. And then you do that draft and it goes back and then it sits there for like a month before it comes back from copy editing. And then it sits there for six months while you're waiting for it to come out and the publicity people are getting the words out and blah, blah, you know. So I always have like two or three projects going at any given time. I always know like 
the next book and, and have a pretty good idea of the book after that. And so the second I'm kind of off writing whatever the primary draft of one book, I'm going back and working on the one that's coming after that yeah. and doing the early research for it or sketching it out or things like that. And that's helpful from like an efficiency point of view, but it's really helpful intellectually because in a sense, you're kind of multitasking in a good way with your own ideas because you're like in the middle of writing one book, but you're researching another one. And it turns out there's something in the research for that book that like makes right. you think of something that you wouldn't have thought of for the book that you're currently writing. And so there's a lot of, you know, kind of networking with yourself that happens when you're running multiple projects at the same time. Yeah, That's been a big part of it. And I don't know, it, the, the kinds of books that I write now are the research side of them. You, you cannot understate how much easier it is to write them because of the internet. I mean, I'm old enough to remember like when I wrote Emergence and even when I wrote Ghost Map, like I had to physically go to sit in the stacks in the British library in London to track down these things. Like it was just way too time intensive to just get the information to write the book. I used to have research assistants to help me go find things from the libraries yeah. and copy articles and stuff like that. Yeah, sure. So that stuff for my kind of work it is literally a hundred times faster. Yeah, yeah. And totally. so the, the increase in kind of output, I think, is is part of that as well. I'm going to ask you one more question that's unrelated to, to science, only because I, I just, uh, this could have gone at the end of the podcast, but it'll feel weird after we spend time talking about life expectancy if we're going to come around on this. So I was going to put it here. You wrote this piece in Time Magazine, uh, a cover story in 2009, uh, that yeah. was called How Twitter Will Change the Way We Live, which was a, a piece that w was much commented on at the time and won you an award, I believe, uh, mm -hmm. a Newhouse School Mirror Award. And I remember reading it at the time. Obviously, I was pretty early on Twitter. I hate Twitter. I mean, I hate it. I mean, we recount does a lot on Twitter. And I think it's an incredibly important thing. I find it in the context of the political conversation, at least if you're well known, it's just a kind of polarizing, toxic sludge cesspool of, of bad vibes and bad karma and bad faith. But I participate in it to some extent. And, and I think it's important. And we're trying, the company is trying to civilize it and bring kind of high quality video journalism to Twitter because we think it, it really matters that these big social platforms not be what they become, which is platforms for misinformation, disinformation, conspiracy theories. And certainly even when they're not those things, things that have divided us into these information silos, this epistemic closure that is like one of the most most serious, I think, and and debilitating problems that our polity and our community and our society faces. So that's all my that's my little rant about Twitter. Mm. But I ask you, when you look at you know, I remember reading the piece at the time, I can't remember what it said. And a lot of people talked about it, but it was very as early and right there on the cover of Time magazine back when that meant something. When you think about what you thought about Twitter then, think about, just take me back to what you thought Twitter would, when you were writing that piece, what you thought it might evolve into, and then talk about what it is now. And I yeah, I don't need you to agree with me about some of my views about it, but I'd be curious how will you think about this debate, because I do think it's become central, mm -hmm. especially in the context of what happened in 2020, especially in the context of the big lie, especially what we've seen in the last two election cycles. There's an increased awareness that I think for a lot of people, increased awareness and increased negative sense of like that this thing has gotten out of control in a bad way. But even if you don't think that, you recognize this matters a lot. I mean, where you ended, I think, is is really important because it, the context of that piece in 2009 was, you know, I was writing for an audience of people who had the prevailing view then, which was that Twitter was just silly. You know, and this was like 140 characters. Why, why does anybody care? Like yeah. what you had for breakfast, you know, in your 140 characters. So what I was trying to say is like, no, 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 there's a, there's a lot 
going on here and this is going to become like infrastructure for the, the way that the world communicates and whenever something becomes a basic communications infrastructure it really matters <laughs> and and also you know something i was thinking about a little bit that I ended up developing more in in wonderland as a theory of innovation is that a lot of really powerful transformative things come into the world initially in the form of frivolity yes <laughs> and things that look like wastes of time and that's often how people stumble across new ways to do things is by doing it just for the fun of it with no apparent purpose that's how we discover new things so Part of that piece was just saying, like, you cannot dismiss this thing. This is going to be a big deal. Yep. And take it seriously and don't get distracted by the idea of, like, it's just people. So many people were just writing it off kind of yeah. casually, like, well, why do I care about this? And this will never be a real company and all this kind of stuff. So that was the context of that piece. Right. I have a pretty good experience with Twitter. I'm kind of lucky because I'm not, I'm not in the middle of the political fray the way you are. And so I don't. Politics Twitter is different. Yeah. It's not like there's a lot of other places in Twitter that aren't like it. Politics Twitter is different. I mean, to me, compared to Facebook, which I just can't, it seems so awful on so many levels. Like I find that Twitter has, for all of its flaws, still managed to retain some of what I found magical about it in the beginning. Yes. And I'll say that as much as I just unloaded on Twitter, I really, I, I don't really think it's like the company's fault. I'm not really trying to trash Jack Dorsey when I say these things. I just think that like that there's something about the way social media functions in the context of certain domains that has become dangerous and so we have to deal with. And I will say, you know, certainly between the two of them, you know, as we sit here and look at Facebook engaged in these absurdities over what to do about Donald Trump, the fact that Twitter, though it mishandled that situation for a very long time, the fact that Twitter just basically made the clean break and said, you've incited violence, you've broken our terms of service in 25 different ways, you're banned for life, that's it, we're done. Um, it's been a model of clarity and admirable in that respect. So in that, and maybe that one decision in the proper way, I think, helps at least uh, make up for a fair number of other sins. You and I could have another hour of conversation <laughs> about this, but yes. like the big question I think is, and you know, I've written about this in a bunch of different ways, like what happened with the social layer is because of deep infrastructure decisions that Tim Berners-Lee made and a yeah. couple of other people made, because there was no identity layer to the open internet and the web. And because that was such a powerful way of organizing things, like links and pages are a good way of organizing, but people is also a really good way of organizing things. And so when we actually got that layer, it was actually filled in by proprietary code and protocols that were yeah. owned by a private company called Twitter and a private company yep. called Facebook. And there's been a general sense of like, oh, this is what happens when, you know, those underlying basic protocols are owned by a private company and then they tweak their algorithms to incite polarization and negativity or mis spread of misinformation and things like that. But I think there's a legitimate question, like if a social identity platform had evolved as an open protocol, it might've been way worse. Yes. This is what happens when you connect people in this particular way. Bad things happen. The, the early days of Usenet were right. pretty ugly too. You know, It's certainly not clear that it would have been better. Let's put it that way. Um, we don't know whether it would have been worse, but we, I don't think there's any reason to think that, wow, it would have been a whole lot better and there would have been some weird utopian place where people would have like created a lovely commons and people would have like gone and like sampled views that they disagree with in a civilized <laughs> way. And there's no example of how that works in human history. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. <laughs> Uh, here on Hell and High Water, come back and talk about the really the fundamental question that I really want to know. And it's true, Steve and I could, I mean, we could do like a, we could do like a seven hour conversation. We'd both be really tired, but it'd be pretty interesting about
about a wide variety of topics, but here's the main one, which is, is there some fucking way that we can all get to live forever? It came up on a podcast that I did a couple weeks ago. Someone said to me, hey, you know, they're working on a pill. They'll let you, let you live forever. I know a lot of people say, oh, that's a t- that sounds terrible. I'm like, give me that fucking pill. <laughs> I mean, anyway, we'll get back to that in a second. After we take this break, come and see us on the other side with Stephen Johnson, author of Extra Life. Extra Life. I want it all here on Han High Water. All right, we're back for the final part of our conversation with Stephen Johnson, the star of the PBS series, Extra Life, author of the new book, Extra Life, and a man of great distinction who does an interview in this PBS series, Extra Life is Short History of Living Longer, but it happens to be a, a short history in the book form, but it also has a four-part documentary series attached to it. So there's plenty to sink your teeth into. And in that series, Stephen does an interview with Francis Collins about genomics health outcomes in race. Let's listen to that and then we'll launch ourselves down the path of discussions about life expectancy and where we're all headed. Let's start with the Human Genome Project. What has that revealed to us about the connection between health outcomes, genetics, and and race? Well, it didn't become clear with that first reference human genome because that was just one actual patchwork of four or five different people. Now, gosh, there's hundreds of thousands of genomes and we've worked really hard to be sure that that's inclusive, including now a lot of genomes from Africa, which is the cradle of humanity. So here's the bottom line. We're all 99.9% the same. We're incredibly similar. We're one family. Most of what we see in health disparities is on the basis of something other than DNA variation. This is primarily on the basis of environmental exposures, and we can see that that's a reflection of their social environment. So Francis Collins is, uh, was the director of the National Human Genome Research Institute from 1993 to 2008. He's like the the gene guy, the genomics guy mm. at the core of it. I mean, he's not Crick and Watson, but he's like, you know, he's a pretty important dude. Yeah. When we talked about Fauci earlier, we talked about, you know, that you, you raised genomics with him. The fact that COVID got sequenced early and how that, you know, got us to vaccines really fast. So I, the reason I played that is not, I mean, I'm interested in the race thing. And it's an interesting question you asked him, but it's also to me, it just highlights the extent to which you know, this is in one of the episodes of the doc that's dedicated to data. And I think data is a very boring word for what really is the essence of this whole fucking thing. I mean, the genome project of like, you think about the core transformational things happening in the world that change everything. And you talk about this with Collins in the series too. It's so, I mean, it's just a turning point. It's Copernican. It's like on that scale in the whole evolution of human life. It's that important. I just want to open that door into as genomics kept coming up as you were writing this book and doing these interviews for the series, let's launch into how does the fact that we've sequenced the human genome, how does that change so much about what the future is going to look like and what the present looks like for sure. But you think about, you know, with additional computing power and brain science and all the other stuff that's happening. I mean, it's just like so central to everything that we can expect in the rest of our lives and our children's lives that seems like we should, you know, really kind of get our heads around it. Yeah, it is. It is extraordinary. And it's a good example of how these things often play out, which is that there's a initial wave of hype and excitement over a scientific or technological advance. And then there's a lag. People talk about this with AI, like the kind of the AI winter, where you get a bunch of hype and then it's like, well, nothing really happened and we didn't really get anything out of that. And then two decades later, 
you suddenly start seeing the returns from that original breakthrough. And I think that that's part of the story of COVID, which you alluded to before, which is it's arguably the first time where we saw a world transforming breakthrough that made a difference to all of our lives in the form of the rapid development of the vaccines that was predicated on our ability to sequence the genome of this emerging virus, you know, three weeks after it was first discovered and to share that information around the world and then design vaccines based on that, on that information. And so if you think about like the Human Genome Project is really like a Clinton, you know, you think of that classic press conference with Clinton, whenever that is, 98 or 99 or something like that. And here we are, it's, it takes 22 years or so for something to be like, oh, that changed everything. That happens a lot. And it's, it sometimes happens because the science takes a while to develop sometimes happens because and this is a big theme of the show which is that the science alone isn't sufficient you need people to kind of fight for its implementation like we don't talk about the show but in the in the book there's there's a big sequence about pasteurization and milk which was a huge killer in the 19th century and you know pasteur comes up with that technique in 1865 but we don't have pasteurized milk on the shelves until 1915 basically so it took people just fighting to get those laws passed and get that reform in there. So there's always this kind of lag. But yes, we are now right on the edge of this with genomics. But, you know, our ability to kind of not just understand, develop potentially personalized medicines based on our DNA profiles, and then edit our DNA is huge. For life expectancy, there are two elements of it. The first is, can you use these technologies to help us reduce the mortality from cancer, say, or Alzheimer's or whatever it is? And can you maybe get people to change their behaviors based on evidence in their genetic profile that you're really at high risk for cholesterol? So you want to do this because we've read something in your DNA. So that's like taking the threats that are out there and using this new technology to right. you know, lessen them the way that we use vaccines to lessen the threat of polio. Yeah. The more radical idea, which is where you're heading, I know, is, is there an avenue whereby we could actually stop the aging process itself? And does our understanding of gene expression somehow lead us down that path? There are a couple of things to say about it. The first is we don't know. What we do know is that there's this very interesting thing that most people don't think about, I think, which is that, you know, your cells are reinventing themselves all the time, right? Your skin cells, you know, they, they only last a couple of days or whatever, and they die off and they replicate and they form new skin cells. But, you know, 52-year-old Stephen is not forming brand new cells. Like you're forming epidermal cells that are like pre-aged, right? Like yeah. the, the new cell that forms looks like the cell of a 52-year-old yeah. slightly weathered yeah. <laughs> human being and not a baby. And so there seems to be this mechanism of like, okay, you know, it, they're built deep inside our DNA and understanding of aging. But we do know that, you know, we're capable of creating genuinely new cells when we create a new life form. Yep. And so there is this early research that says that you can maybe kind of stop that aging clock. And it's not crazy stuff. It's legitimate science. It's very early stage. We don't know what the implications of it will be. It's not something that's going to happen in a material way, I think, in the next decade or anything like that. But it's right. also not bogus. And so the thing about it that is really important, though, to remember, and this is a, this is a big theme, particularly at the end of the book, we don't get into it as much in the show, which is, I don't think people fully realize, most people realize that we went from two to eight billion people on the planet 
over the last hundred years and kind of 1920 to 2020s, roughly just under 2 billion to just under 8 billion. We did not do that because people started having more babies, right? People are having fewer children on average globally than, than ever before, right? We have whole countries where there's like, we're not having enough babies to replace the current population level. We got from 2 billion to 8 billion people because people stopped dying and kids stopped dying. And people started living longer, so the generations stacked up, and they lived long. They they survived childhood enough to have their own children, and their parents lived long enough to see their great grandchildren. And you do that, and you go from two billion to eight billion people. And on and this is the interesting, complicated reality of this is like we have the climate crisis because of that as well, right? If we had just stayed at our two billion level of population, we wouldn't really have the crisis we're having now, even if we all industrialized, because there just wouldn't have been enough people to make the kind of carbon impact that we have made on the on the environment over the last you know 20 or 30 years and how we're projected to. So in a weird way, the climate crisis is the byproduct of industrialization plus yes. triumphs in public health and longevity. Right, right. <laughs> And, you know, we, we have an understandable tendency to focus everything on the industrial side and be like, oh, it's evil yeah. capitalism that's done it. Yeah. But it's also like, you know, smallpox eradication did it too. Yeah. And so my point is, our one kind of hope for the planet is that we think that overall population is going to stabilize at some point in the middle of this century, probably 2060 or something like that, probably around 10 billion people. And then it probably will start to drop. Why? Because of this phenomenon called the demographic transition, which basically every country that is industrialized has gone through, where there's an initial period where people stop dying, kids stop dying, and the population swells because of that for the reasons I just described. But then as they urbanize, as women get more educated, as women enter the workforce, as they get access to birth control, it stabilizes and the overall birth rate drops. And people realize, oh, I, all of my kids are going to live, so I only need to have two or just one, or I might not have any kids. And the countries that have industrialized the, the earliest have all gone through this. And th those are the countries around the world where like, the populations are shrinking. That's what's going to be happening in the United States. You know, it certainly would be happening without immigration. So we think that that is coming, right. that is coming to the rest of the world as well. And yep. that's why populations are going to stabilize. But if people stop dying, i.e. they start living to 150 <laughs> or 200, yeah. all of that is gone. Right. If we're just going to blow that. We're right. going to have 20 billion people on the right. planet. Right. And so our problem is, you know, and this is something I talked about a little bit in Farsight of my book about decision making, which is that decision to flip that switch. Like, do we choose to take the pill, right? I don't know. This is not the red pill or the blue pill. This is the green pill or something. The pill that makes you live forever. You know, are we going to decide as a society that that is something we want to have an option for that would be the single most momentous decision we'd ever made you know i mean it change, changes everything in our values and our, the way that society is organized and carrying capacities pressures on the planet you know our religious systems everything if you eliminate death everything is transformed yeah. and there are a lot of people like i don't want that as you mentioned you know a lot of people are like i want to live incredibly healthy to hundred, meet my great grandkids and then die in my sleep. That's what I want. I don't want to live forever. Right. But a lot of people are like, sure, I'd love to live forever. And so our problem is that we don't have, we've never really had a mechanism to collectively make a decision about yeah. a technology like that. Right. If, if it can be made, if it can be done, we it, do it. it is done. Right. And it may be that, you know, we have to, the, the innovation we need most is some global decision-making process where we can 
try and figure out how an advance like that would happen if it would be allowed to happen and yeah it's just incredibly thorny very hard to imagine i mean given the impulses that we all have now the notion that there could ever be like any kind of a global governance of that kind seems strikes me as a highly far-fetched i i don't want to get that far off into the speculative but but here's i guess why I, I think about your like looking at the book and the series it, it's only because it's a smaller thing it's easier to kind of get your head around right in the sense that you have all these other chapters in the book but the series is very neatly it's like vaccines data drugs behavior right why are we living longer here's the answer i got four answers for you <laughs> right three of them are unequivocal vaccines drugs and data yeah. and the, underneath all of those are technological things driving the data is you know increased you know, moore's law increased computing power networks all that shit all of those also apply the technology also applies in the drug space you know these big unelectable laws of kind of economic technological physics you know have mm. have gotten us there human behavior is different it's not governed by moore's law in quite the way that some of those other things are it's not a brute force thing and there's much more mixed evidence about behavioral changes although again if you took the long view over the last hundred years to your point we have in fact improved our behaviors in a lot of ways that have been in the macro have helped to extend life right so all that you know i get that it's very powerful and it's why i think everybody should read this book extra life by stephen johnson and watch this series because you'll learn a lot about this but there is one question which is do you take the green pill are we going to get there? Is that a thing that's real? I mean, I am just stunned and I feel like I'm I'm a pretty well-informed person. I'm pretty well-read. I'm not at all a scientific specialist, but I'm a good, like I, you know, you know, I know, I know a lot of interesting people and I'm staggered by the degree of optimism, Stephen. Like when you talk to people, like having lived through some of the stuff that I've lived through in the last few years and through my whole life, my mother died of cancer when I was 20 years old. Mm. I've been in cancer world in one way or another since I was really about 12. And I know some of the best people in that world, some people who are like on the forefront of these are the people who are going to cure cancer. The confidence that people have that we're going to cure cancer in the next decade is just overwhelming. That, that we stand on the right on the precipice of extraordinary advances in public health, in private health, on every front of medicine is taken for granted. This is not, these are not remotely mm. are disputable views. Everyone is kind of like, again, in the expert world, yeah. you know, they're all like, cancer is going to be cured. It's not like, it's quite, is it eight years from now or is it 12 years from now? There are a number of roads to Rome, but that's not going to be a thing. Your great, great grandchildren will not, no one will die of breast cancer. That'll never be an issue. Yeah. And then you get into the stuff that relates to AI and you get into stuff that relates to, to nanotech and, you know, all of these things that have been on the march. So like, I don't at all think it's that the notion of the green pill, I think is one that we, I don't know shit about this. Right. But given the level of optimism about the progress on these other fronts, if you say to me on the basis of having talked to a lot more scientists than I will ever talk to say to me, yeah, I mean, it's not guaranteed, but we could have that choice to make in our lifetimes. That doesn't make me go roll my eyes. I go, okay. Yeah. And here's my point about it all, which is, is it like eternal life that you could, you know, live forever? Or are you just talking about extending life where people are now no, no longer living in their 70s, 80s, but a rapid escalation where instead of going up life expectancy as it has been for 100 years, getting longer in a very gradual, slow way, or do we suddenly see a burst forward where suddenly you go from life uh, expectancy to be 72 to it being 122? You know, yeah. uh, and we don't necessarily, we don't say you can live forever, but we say, man, for a lot of people, extending your life by 30 or 40 years is well within, in reason. And I think that's a thing where that choice that you talked about before, a lot of people say, I don't want to live forever. 
And a lot of people, you know, like there'll be a time I'm ready to go, but there's going to be an overwhelming number of people. If you said to him, you could have another 30 healthy years would be like, fuck. Yeah, that's like, that's not a hard one. Right. For a lot of people. I'm not saying everyone, but, and so that's going to present some interesting challenges. As you say, there's the environmental thing. And the last thing I'll say, and this is all just a jump ball. This is like me just venting my spleen about this, but I'll say this, you know, there's also, and this relates, I think importantly to some practical questions related to what you were talking about, about the climate thing as being a giant counterweight problem to all of some of these other projections. There's also, you know, the curse while singularity thing, which 10 years ago, when people talked about living forever, what they meant was we will have a sufficiently robust network that you'll be able to download your consciousness into a silicon chip and you won't live in your body, but your consciousness will live forever in a, in a really big, giant shared AI. Again, and I don't think that people have given up on that either. We have a backup plan. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. So we have some big choices to face here, yeah. right? And I wonder... When you suggested some global mechanism, I'm like, how's that ever going to work? As a practical matter, what do you suggest? Like, Mm. what do you think as we start to understand the core things from your book, which is that life is like, whether we get some of these more far out things that we're talking about right here, which I don't think are wholly implausible, or whether we just get what you've charted for at least the middle of the century, life expectancy still marching out, the horizon getting further and further out. Those have big implications too. What do you think you know, we should do about that. One of the riffs that I have in, in the book about smallpox eradication is that when Jenner, actually Thomas Jefferson was a big advocate for smallpox eradication in like the early 1800s, which is kind of crazy to think about. And so one of the riffs I have, like in 1800, it was impossible to imagine eradicating smallpox. You could imagine it, but you could never do it. There's no way you could do it. And something changed between 1800 and 1979 a few things changed, right? That enabled us to do this incredibly audacious thing. And some of that was technological, some of it was scientific, but a big part of it was the invention of international global bodies like the WHO. You couldn't have done smallpox eradication in 1800 because you had no global institution capable of overseeing an operation like that. That hadn't been invented yet. And so we are capable We have this track record of inventing these new ways of organizing intellectual activity and physical activity around the world in the service of a greater good like smallpox eradication. And, you know, we've done it. So perhaps there are other equally audacious things that we can invent that are things like global decision-making bodies. It's possible. We, We had none of them 200 years ago. We have a number of them today. Let's keep doing that. Let's keep building on that tradition. Secondly, you know, in terms of the progress going forward, the the one question is, do we we got a lot of mileage in terms of the life expectancy number from from the childhood mortality reductions, right? So the average was being dragged down massively by the number of two month old babies that were dying and two year old kids who were dying and eight year old kids. It just pulls the whole thing down. And we have, you know, in the United States, we've largely reduced the impact of that close to zero. Childhood mortality doesn't have a huge impact anymore on the overall right, number. Right. Now, globally, we still have room to go in that, although we've made a lot of progress there as well. But in terms of a country like the United States, future progress is going to come at the other end of the spectrum. Yeah, It's going to come from people who might have died at 70, living to 90, right? Right. And a big part of it that you alluded to that we don't actually, I don't address nearly enough in either the show or the book. It's one thing that we, we could have dived into more, is the difference between lifespan and health span. Yes. And what we've gotten really good at doing on that far end of the spectrum is keeping people alive. But in many cases, they're kept alive for five or 10 years, but their bodies really just don't work anymore. Yeah. And it's not a great 
period to be alive and you're, or you've got Alzheimer's. And it's super expensive. And it's super expensive. It's a society, like I mean. And so what people really say that they want is not to live forever, but to live fully healthy until 100 and then drop dead, as I said before. And so, you know, it's a lot easier to measure lifespan than it is to measure health span. But in terms of people's actual experiences, health span is, you know, just as important in a lot of ways. And so that's something where we could make a lot of progress and actually not see the overall life expectancy number change that much. And still, it would be a great sign of progress if you're 95 and still driving and going for long walks and your brain's fully together and stuff like that. So so that's something we need to work on as well. And the other thing is just that as the population ages, you know, it just changes so many things. I mean, thinking about, you know, just briefly alluding to politics in this, like I did some rough back in the envelope calculations a while back about what would have happened if the overall age demographics of the United States and the UK had stayed where they were in kind of 1950, then, you know, percentage of people were 18 to 25, 25 to whatever. And they all had voted the same based on that thing. But you just kept the, the distribution of people by age and society. Brexit would have been defeated decisively and Trump would have been defeated decisively. And so the Trump era in some ways is, it's like, the, it's another kind of like payoff of the advances in public health. We have all these people who are 80 who would not have been alive or 90 who would not have been alive or sitting at home and watching Fox News and voting disproportionately highly, even though most young people are as progressive as they've ever been, but they're getting weighed down by all these people who used to die and are now alive. And they're shifting the whole kind of balance, the electoral balance of the country because of that. And so it's just one of those things where when you change that variable, you know, how long does the average person live? It sends ripples through every part of society. And yet it, I don't know, it's not because the changes to it happen slowly and incrementally, we tend to not focus on them. Yeah. But in fact, it's driving so much of, of the life around us. Man, I, um, we should talk like more often than every 10 years. <laughs> I think it's a good way to kind of capture everything that's happened over the last 10 years. Yeah. We really, we could... <laughs> it's a really delightful. I can't say enough. Like I've obviously talked more. I feel like I've had more conversations about public health because like everybody else, you know, in the last year that I had maybe my whole life, but, but I, I love talking to doctors and I love talking to public health people and I, I learn so much from doing it, but I have to say that Beyond getting a chance to talk to you again, having not seen you in a while and being really you know psyched about having a chance to reconnect, I just I love talking to people who are not scientists but who are like scientifically uh, well read and savvy and have spent time talking about. It. There's something just a different approach to it. It's like you know you again. There's nothing that beats a great cancer doc to talk about cancer yeah. or a great epidemiologist to talk about epidemics or great you know whatever. But the great thing about your work. Uh, and I, the ghost maps, I mean, genuinely one of my favorite of the books of your many books of, uh, that, that I read before, but I just, I love that overlay of social, I won't call it social science, but of, of journalism, social theory, and the overlay of that kind of approach coming at this stuff, the way you come at it makes these topics, which obviously are urgent for people and people have a much higher tolerance to, to read about them and watch them than they ever have before because of COVID. But it's still, for a lot of people, a heavy lift. And I think one of the great things about the work you've always done is that it like kind of opens up this stuff. It, and it's great to see your particular eye and your particular perspective and all of the stuff that you've done over the course of your storied career kind of get laid into what feels like 
uh, kind of a landmark thing for you. So I can't recommend it more highly to anybody who's out there listening here. Extra Life, A Short History of Living Longer by Stephen Johnson. Watch the series on PBS, but definitely don't just watch the series, read the book because um, there's overlap for sure, but it's the synergy of it that makes the thing really work. So Stephen, thank you for taking the time. Congratulations as you, uh, you did it again, dude. Thank you, John. Thank you, brother. Hell and I Water is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thanks again to Stephen Johns for being with us. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell and I Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I am your host and executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and I Water. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered the podcast. Justin Chermel and Diana Roten handle the research. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer. And Christian Fidel... Castro Russell is our executive producer. 